Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. In every episode, you'll hear stories of our authors of color, how God led them to write their books, and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. Hi, everyone. It's Helen Lee, producer of the Every Voice Now podcast. And we are thrilled to be bringing you today's episode with our special guest, Glenn Packiam. Glenn is the lead pastor of Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, California. It's a role he started just this past summer. And prior to that, he served on the staff of New Life Church in Colorado Springs for 22 years. Glenn is a prolific and respected author who has published multiple books, starting from when he was in his 20s including his recent title with IVP Academic called Worship and the World to Come. You will hear all about his publishing journey and details about his ethnic identity journey that you may never have heard before. He'll also offer great wisdom about the temptations and challenges of public ministry, both in the areas of worship and also platform building. So I just found myself nodding and saying amen over and over in this interview. And I know you too will enjoy this conversation with Glenn Packiam. Thank you, Glenn, for joining us for this episode. Thank you so much, Helen. Great to talk to you today. Well, what we always do for the Every Voice Now podcast in the beginning is we want to hear about your ethnic identity journey. So if you don't mind, I'd love for you just to share about your own ethnic background and any moments in your own understanding of your ethnicity that stand out to you that you wouldn't mind sharing with us. So I'm originally from Malaysia. It's where I'm from. And of course, that was something I took for granted in Malaysia. It was only after leaving Malaysia and coming to the US. So I did that when I was 10 years old. Our family moved from Malaysia to America just for three years. My parents went to Bible school in Portland, Oregon, and then moved back to Malaysia. But that's when I started to realize, oh, okay, not everybody understands this. And then how to kind of parse out nationality, ethnicity, culture, Mm -hmm. you know, because those are different things too. Yeah. So in Malaysia, you have Malays who are sort of the indigenous race, but then you Mm -hmm. have Chinese and then you have Mm -hmm. Indians. And I was always told, oh, you know, we're sort of in the other category because my mom is Sinhalese, which is, Mm -hmm. it's more or less like Indian, you know. But there's some different sort of cultural pieces that are a little little bit different. So in Malaysia, that distinction between Sinhalese or Sri Lankan and Indian felt like a more important distinction. When we left Malaysia, it was like, no, that distinction didn't really matter. You'd basically say, yeah, I'm basically of Indian ethnicity. But I think what's strange about that, and especially being here in America, is people then assume that I am culturally Indian or have all this other sorts of things. And so Malaysia is its own kind of culture, and it, it, it is a culture that is its own melting pot of those Southeast Asian cultures. So I've actually never been to India, for example, you know, and there's plenty of things about culture in India that I don't, I don't relate to. I, it wasn't my upbringing. So after three years in Portland, we moved back to Malaysia, and then there was that added cultural confusion for people of saying, well, are you Americanized now? Like, can you still, you know, Do you still like to eat this type of food or whatever? And then after four years in Malaysia, I moved back to the States to go to college. And even that was kind of interesting because I hung out a lot with international students at first for that semester. I went to Oral Roberts University 
And there were students from Indonesia, which again, you're like, well, that's not the same country or ethnicity or culture, but yeah. it felt close enough. It felt approximate enough. I did hang out a lot with international students for that first semester and then gradually began to kind of make my own way at, uh, at college. And then from there, after graduating, I went to Colorado Springs and that was interesting because that was around the time of 9-11. So there were one or two mm. people that began to make funny comments about terrorists. And, you know, it's all of a sudden now you're like, wait a minute, now you're associating me with Arabs, which, okay. Mm. But actually talk about a culture and an ethnicity that's way different and way removed from yeah. what I knew. But just starting to recognize that people were sort of putting me in buckets that were related to what they were familiar with, but actually was quite foreign to my own self-understanding. Mm. I want to dive in a little bit more because you said that when you went to college, your natural instinct was to hang out with the international students, which makes yeah. sense to me. You grew up in Malaysia, although you had those three yeah. years in the U.S. Did, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about just that decision. So I had come into college uh, halfway through. So I'd come, I started mm -hmm. in January. I'd missed the mm -hmm. fall semester. So because of that, I felt a little bit on the outside for a number of reasons, but also because mm -hmm. I'd come in kind of at semester. And so the international students were, they were very warm, very mm -hmm. um, kind of like, hey, come down here to our, you know, Indonesian church and there's great, you know, food afterwards. And so that felt like, okay, here was, was people that were, that were warm and inviting and everything else at the time felt just a little harder to break in. So it wasn't mm. like, it wasn't, you know, directly a conscious decision, but it, it just felt sort of, yeah, I kind of fell into it in, in a way. Yeah. I have found that even when I've lived in places where there's a smaller international community integration or even the learning from one another is a little bit easier. But when there's a larger international community, it almost, mm -hmm. in a weird way, it almost makes it easier for people to separate into their lanes. And so that's an interesting, like Colorado Springs, not very diverse, not a large Asian community. But then in some ways, it almost allowed me to discover my roots culturally and ethnicity and to affirm it. It took time, but because I was sort of the only one, you know, I could say, okay, guys, here's what Malaysia's like versus when there's a whole lot of others. I think people can more easily, you know, fall into their, not tribes, but their little clusters together, little pods together. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I've read research on this where like in school settings, for example, where you imagine like more diverse schools are going to have more just integration and more multi-ethnic friendships that actually apparently doesn't prove itself to be true. It's exactly what you just said, that there's more self-segregation, which is really fascinating to well, me. I think about my new my new home here in Orange County, yeah, Southern California. Yeah. Lots of diversity by the numbers, mm -hmm. but actually it's a segregated diversity. You know, you could say, well, wow. this city is where all the Vietnamese are and this is the Hispanic community. And, you know, and obviously that's not true in all the places, but there are these pockets like that. And that's, that's an interesting thing to me. This is a tangent, but I'd love to know more about for you as a pastor now in, the, in a congregation where you might see some of those yeah. kinds of dynamics. What's your approach to trying to figure out a way to create a sense of unity and cross-cultural relationships in that kind of a context? Yes. I mean, that's a real-time puzzle and question mm. right now, Helen. I mean, I'm thinking about it as I start preaching. We're in a series mm -hmm. through the book of Ephesians, and I'm thinking about some of those examples. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about, you know, a change even in my own preaching when I lived in Colorado was that I began to tell more stories about Malaysia, and I began mm -hmm. to tell more stories about my childhood. And it's interesting, Helen, because I think it kind of maps 
on with my own journey of embracing that part of my story. Mm-hmm. In my 20s, I think I was very keen to show that I belonged. And my wife is, you know, born in Iowa. She's, you know, ethnically a mix of different European ethnicities. And so I would tell a lot of stories about her family and about the farm mm-hmm. and about and it, and it was sort of a way of saying, "Look, you know, like I'm I'm like you, a white majority church or a majority culture church." And then as I began to to accept and embrace every part of my story, unique that it is, I would tell other stories. I would tell stories about my own heritage. Mm-hmm. And that helped. I watched our church actually, this was back in Colorado, I watched mm-hmm. more people of from ethnic minorities start to come to the church. So mm-hmm. I don't know that that's the answer here where I am, but I think that's part of it is representation of stories and voices mm-hmm. and perspectives. Yes, from the pulpit, but also in other places in the church, that makes a difference. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that intersection between your own understanding of your ethnic heritage and identity with how you engage with the church, the world, evangelicalism. Pick one <laughs> or yeah, all three. I mean, those, are all, those are all huge, isn't it? And yeah, I, right. I, the thing that I have found to be most helpful is to deal with particulars. So to mm. deal with the particulars of my church, my context, my situation rather than zooming out and making, trying to make some universals, mm-hmm. you know. So the church that I was at in Colorado, very missions-minded, very mm-hmm. globally conscious, which can be a good thing. I think what's tricky about that is sometimes in being aware of other nations, there's still a bit of a paternalistic or patronizing thing of like, oh, so, you know, do we need to go there and mm-hmm. what, you know. Or people swing it the other way and say, you guys need to teach us everything, you know, mm-hmm. and to say, well, listen, we're all just people. We're all just trying to follow Jesus. And there's some great gifts that and of the perspectives that uh, we can bring. And then there's others that we don't. So I've tried to kind of just think about the particulars of the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, Helen, I think about a couple of years ago with the murder of George mm-hmm. Floyd, black, white tensions here in America, the history of white oppression of black people in America is a long and complicated history. And I think for me, as a brown-skinned first-generation immigrant, I recognized that I was coming in as an outsider to that story. Mm. And so there are times when being self-conscious about my perspective allowed me the gift of saying, catch me up here, guys. Tell me what's mm. going on. Like, you know, It almost allowed me to stand as a third party. And then there are other times where I've had to say, okay, I can't speak for all immigrants. I can't speak for, you know, all all of that. Yeah. And actually, I don't, that's not necessarily even a primary identity for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I I go back and forth, to be honest. This is very much a real-time thing where there are moments when people see me primarily as my ethnic or cultural or immigration sort of story, and that's the lens, you know, that they are relating to me. And and I think, whoa, that's kind of weird. Why not just deal with me as Mm. a pastor, as a human, as a Christian, you know? And then there are other times where I think it's probably worth reminding you that I have a different, I have a slightly different perspective. Again, not that I can speak for the global church, but I I do have memories and friends and family members who represent a different part of the church that actually is helpful when we're struggling with the quote-unquote American evangelicalism. Your particular unique background and story, I think, just lends itself to such an interesting lens on so many things. And worship leading and worship in particular, I think, which is what you, of course, wrote about in your book, is is one of those lenses. What are some other things you've had to deal with as a person of color who is a worship leader, a pastor operating in majority white spaces and places? 
I mean, I think anytime you're in the minority culturally or ethnically, you're aware of the ways people might view you. And I, I wouldn't say that I've experienced prejudice or, or bias. I do chuckle sometimes because I was aware early on that you don't normally see worship leaders who are of, you know, kind of this Sinhalese or Indian ethnic uh, background as the sort of primary worship leader. So so mm-hmm. sometimes when we'd be traveling, people would assume I was in the band, but they'd be like, oh, you know, you're the keyboard player. You're not mm-hmm. the, the front man, so to speak, the worship leader, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's an interesting one because, yeah, there there is a quote unquote type, you know, that worship mm-hmm. leaders look, look a certain way and this is, yeah. you know. <laughs> and if you don't fit that type, so we would travel and the host person would, they wouldn't come to me, they'd come to the person who looked the part. And the truth is we, we our approach was very much inspired by the early days of, of Hillsong United. So there's a number, you know, there'd be three or four worship leaders that would travel with, you know, so they weren't wrong in approaching someone else who looked the part more. They were just yeah. sort of wrong in ignore, assuming that I wasn't, you know. Right. And so that, you know, I was aware of that. But I think the blessing over time is now, even now when I go and travel as a, as a preacher or a guest speaker, mm-hmm. people will come up to me and say, you know what, I used to follow you guys when you were leading worship. And it was so inspiring to see someone who looked a little bit like mm-hmm. me who was actually leading worship. And so mm-hmm. I take that stuff. That means a lot to me. Um, yeah. I'm aware of it. I'm aware uh, that it means something to people. I was in mm-hmm. Rick. I was one of the few, even yeah. think about Integrity, Hosanna the worship label that I was on for yeah. my solo albums and for my albums with Desperation Band. We'd go to these retreats and you would have some gospel artists, you would have some African-American mm-hmm. worship leaders, you'd have you know a lot of rock and roll white worship leaders, but I was the only Asian worship leader of any kind of Asian. You know, yeah. and Asian is such a broad descriptor too, right? So I was the only Asian uh, worship leader at these things. So I was mm-hmm. aware of that. And there's mm-hmm. a gift to that or responsibility, I guess, with that to say, mm-hmm. boy, I hope this opens the door so that you know, years from now, this will become more and more normal. It's weird, Helen, like on the flip side, when I was in high school in Malaysia, mm-hmm. we would have these worship leaders from America come over yeah. and they would almost try to do the reverse thing where they would say, man, you guys should write songs based on your own ethnic styles and instruments. Mm-hmm. Don't write Western songs. And I just remember thinking, well, that's so strange. Like, mm. So you want me to write like a song on a sitar or something? Like I, I don't want to do that. So it was right, go- right. it goes both ways. There's an awkwardness here because of globalization, right? Mm-hmm. right? Every cultures have just bled on each other, especially when you mm-hmm. think about music, because mm-hmm. media media is so globalized, right? That it's hard to parse out what's what anymore. So is it weird that I was you know one of the only sort of Asian worship leaders in America? Yeah, kind of. But was it also weird when someone would would meet me in Malaysia and say, you should just only write music like that? Yeah, that was weird too, you know? So honestly, I don't know how to sort through all of it. It is a little (laughs) bit confusing. But I think the best thing a person can do if you're in the majority culture is just let the person that you're interacting with, let them sort of Mm. set the tone for how to interact. Like if you're bringing things up and you're defining them by their kind of culture or ethnicity, then you're putting them in a box either way, mm-hmm. you know, whether yeah. that's assuming that they're the techie keyboard player or yeah. assuming that they need to write songs on the sitar or whatever, you know. So so I think either way, you're showing your hand or showing your temptation to be at the helm of power, if you will, in the mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. by doing that. Let the other person have agency by saying, well, how do you want to exist in this space? How do you mm-hmm. want to lead in this space? 
Before we return to our conversation, I just wanted to let you know about a new book from IVP Academic titled Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. This is a remarkable collection of written works from numerous Chinese Christian leaders who are ministering in a difficult context with governmental pressures and the kinds of challenges that are largely unknown to us here in the American church. Author and pastor Tim Keller notes, Faithful disobedience documents the price that house churches in China have paid for following Christ. We think it's a must read to better understand the situation our brothers and sisters in China are experiencing. So keep listening to find out how you can get a special discount to this unique and important IVP book. Now, back to our conversation. I want to switch gears looking at now your background as an author, because it feels like, boy, have you written a lot of books. And it's a, it's awesome to see, I mean, how many of, I wish I could have written like a fraction of the books that you have written over the course of your career but so think far. about all so, the books you've had your fingerprints on, Helen, over the years. <laughs> it's really remarkable. Okay, I'll take that. Sure. Okay. So sure, sure, sure. There will be a jewel in heaven for those books that I've gotten a chance to help a midwife along. But uh, yeah. tell me a little bit about your journey as an author. Like, when did that start? Was it something that just happened in your adult years? Or did you ever have any kind of an inkling as a child, as a kid, as a young person that you might mm-hmm. end up writing many books? I mean, lots of people in life want to just write one and you've I, written a lot. So tell us a little I, bit about I the do. genesis of I've been very blessed to have so many opportunities here in America. So I'm very grateful for that. And it was a childhood dream. I It's mm. funny, when I, when I was nine or 10 years old, probably 10 years old, I got one of those like exercise notebooks, you know, uh, spiral bound or whatever. And mm. I made my own cover and I, I, you know, started writing a book. And I, it was even, a, it was a little bit self-important because I even created like a bio page for myself at 10 years old. Oh, and my, my mom has saved this stuff. It exists somewhere, you know, and oh, it was a book gosh. about missions or a book about how to evangelism or something like that. Nice. And so, yeah, it, it was a childhood dream to mm. write. And it was, it was something that was nurtured by my mom. I mean, my mom, mm. really, I would come home from school in Malaysia and, you know, after finishing homework or whatever, I was never allowed to say I'm, I was bored. So if I needed something <laughs> to do... My mom would say, well, why don't you go grab the Encyclopedia Britannica, go read up on a bird or an animal, and then write an essay about it, you know? <laughs> so I was, basically, she was teaching me how to do research at an early age. It. And that has, that's a skill that has has paid dividends over the years. Nice. Oh, man. See, it's so funny because we have an Encyclopedia Britannica here in the house, and I have regularly tried your mom's tactic with my boys. I haven't gone as far as write the essay because I can't get them to open the book. They're like, oh, mom, it's all online. I don't want it. I don't need to look at that. Oh, so kudos to her. I'm really impressed. <laughs> well, so what was your first book? And yeah. what was that experience like overall? Yep. I mean, it was with Tyndale Publishing. It was called Butterfly in Brazil. It came out in 07. I was 29. So it was oh, such wow. a dream come true. And I, I enjoyed the process of writing. It was really a book addressed to younger 20-somethings about sort of how your life can make a difference by staying the course and small things. And and I was trying to, I was in a way working out my own corrective course of thinking in my late teens and early 20s that meant to make a difference, you got to make a big splash and you got to be a history maker and a world changer and all of the stuff that, and then realizing that actually the way our life counts or, or matters is by a small faithfulness mm-hmm. over the long haul. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what that book was about. And it was a fun experience. I realized that like, man, there's there's a whole lot of difference between between knowing, um, you know, how to put some sentences together mm-hmm. and then, you know, actually organizing it over the course of a full length book and all that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a learning experience. And I had a great editor that was very mm-hmm. patient with me through that. How does a 29-year-old get a book contract with an established Christian publishing house? Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. So I was with the Desperation Mm -hmm. Band and the albums Mm -hmm. were doing well and some of the songs were doing well and we were traveling. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I I was also part of a large church, which at the Mm -hmm. time, you know, when you're part of these sorts of things and people do refer to it sometimes as the evangelical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And I get that. There's a lot of ugly undersides to it. Mm But agents and publishers do sort of hang around that. And what was interesting, Helen, is so I began this sort of partnership with an agent in mm-hmm. 06. We began working on the book. We got the contract. And then shortly after that, the pastor of that church, Ted Haggard, had a pretty public, yes. you know, moral failure. And I, my agent dropped me after that. I thought, I'd ne- I'll never write another book. So it, cool. pe- pe- people criticize it. But on the other hand, that stuff is a bit of a house of cards. Like it can fall very quickly. And I experienced mm-hmm. that we were getting uninvited from things. So when Butterfly in Brazil came out in 07, it was a little bit of a, wah, 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 you know, like I didn't know if it was going to mm-hmm. matter because all of that sort of surrounding structure was kind of collapsing. Do you remember what your mindset was at that time when your agent dropped you and you were kind of experiencing the fallout of everything that yeah. was happening at New Life? Yeah, it it was hard. It was disappointing. But honestly, like it was actually really good for my soul because Mm. I recognized that the seeds of vanity and the seeds of sort of self-importance were there in my own heart. Mm. And watching that stuff start to unravel, it had a purifying effect for me to be able Mm. to say, okay, so what is this about? Like, is this about influence? Is this about significance? Is this about Mm. making a mark? Or does any of it really matter? And the Lord really saved me in some ways. That book did not do well, and it didn't necessarily launch you know, anything. It wasn't like a straight line up and to the right. It was actually <laughs> like, boy, this might be one and done. I may never write again. And, and, and it led me to some good, healthy reflection of, okay, and if that's the case, what do you think about that? And is mm-hmm. that okay? And what really matters? And all of that. I'd love to just see what you might be able to think about in terms of comparing and contrasting your your first book with uh, the one that we're going to talk about a little bit from IVP. And I know you've written since then as well. So it's hard okay, to maybe yeah. like say first book to last book, but maybe first book to recent books. Well, I feel a lot more settled in my voice. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's an important thing for every author. But really, yeah. it's it's kind of a metaphor for life. Like, you don't really find your voice until a bit, a little bit later. Mm. And even if you think you have something to say when you're younger, and, and you might, the ideas might be there, but the ideas are not as enfleshed as they should be. Or, or you mm-hmm. know, if you think of incarnation almost as a process here mm-hmm. where, where mm-hmm. the word, you know, loosely speaking here, the message is becoming flesh. It takes yeah. time. It takes time for that, those ideas. So, it, Am I still pulling on the threads of that message of Butterfly in Brazil, that first book? Yeah, you bet. But mm. is it so different now? Is it deeper now? Is it, has it found more earthiness and, and fleshment in my own life and story? Yeah, because mm. of the ups and downs of life, because of growth, because of pain, because of all that. So even this book, Worship in the World to Come with IVP, 
That's my first and only academic book. I've mm-hmm. written a couple of chapters in like academic volumes. Yeah. But this one with IVP is my only academic book. And in one sense, it was like a first all over again because I'd never written an academic book before. Yeah. And I wish I could do it over. I wish I could. There's things I would do better. You know, it's like, it's like mm-hmm. oh, man, I, I could make that even better now, I think, you know. But that's going to be all of life. You're, you're going to mm-hmm. keep at it. I think what was fun about this project with IVP was I got to use a different kind of voice. So I got to operate in a different sort of mode. Yeah. Because it was an academic book. Yeah, yeah. It's an academic book, but it's very readable. It's very yeah. accessible. And I love, I mean, I love the subtitle. Of, I mean, I love the title as well. But this idea of exploring Christian hope in contemporary worship is really, to me, just it's intriguing. So I'd love to ask you, as you survey kind of the ways that Christians sing, you know, today, do you feel like we've lost any of that sense of hope? Or do you feel like, thank goodness, like the church has not lost that hope? Or is it somewhere in between? Well, you, you know, so it's interesting, Helen, because this relates to that whole industrial complex. And mm-hmm. industries tend to push things in a pyramid kind of form. So mm-hmm. there are the big dogs that kind of get pushed to the top and then there's mm-hmm. others at the bottom. But it, that's not a reflection of all the art that's out there mm-hmm. or all of the people out there. So if you just say, do you know our Christian songwriters writing songs that are about the world to come or about resurrection or about, you know, a robust theology of hope? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Do those songwriters get pushed out through to radio and tours and all that? No, not usually, you know? Hmm. So, and that's where some of the discrepancy is. So, when I was doing some of the research work for this, are there songs that we, uh, oh, that are out there that reflect kind of a a full, robust theology of hope? Yes. Are those the songs that tend to chart on CCLI or that we tend to hear in the radio? No. And the songs that we say are songs of hope based on those kind of popular, you know, repertoire, they're missing a lot. There's a lot they're not saying. There's a lot that they're that they're leaving out. So here's the interesting thing. And I and what I where I come to in the book is even though these songs don't say all that they should, people do still experience hope when they sing. Mm-hmm. People do still experience hope when they worship. And there's a theological reason for that, but it certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't bother with writing better songs. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about why those particular songs on Hope aren't the ones that get to the top of the pyramid? I think it's something to do with art that is mass consumed, you know, art for the masses. Mm. You know, think of whether it's painting or movies, whatever, like I'm not a connoisseur of good films, of art films, you know. I watch the summer blockbusters, you know, that's, so I, I'm a case in point If there was some really thoughtful indie filmmaker that, that made this art film. I, I, I'm not the audience for that, you know. So I think sometimes worship songs are a little bit like that. When you're writing for radio or when you're mm-hmm. writing for mass consumption, unfortunately, you tend to sort of go towards the lowest common denominator. And mm-hmm. so you're choosing melodies that are very replicable and accessible. Mm-hmm. And you're choosing phrases and lyrics that are kind of familiar. And so you're Mm. not likely, the songwriter's not likely to take risks to say something new or to unpack Mm. something a bit bit dense. And then the ones who are, are kind of accepting that they may not have commercial success and and that's okay. Mm. I think there are exceptions, you know, and, and usually when those exceptions happen is when someone who has access to the mainstream makes popular a song that didn't emerge from that mainstream. I mean, one Mm. example of this is, Mm Is he worthy? You know, so Andrew mm. Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? What a, you know, a song with dense sort of imagery and metaphor from the book of Revelation. Arguably not the most seeker-friendly song because 
you know, open the scroll? Like, what are guests going to be thinking? What are we singing yeah. about? You know, but you have a guy like Chris Tomlin who has, you know, can open all the doors mm-hmm. for songs. He records it and boom, this song gets mm-hmm. out there. So there are those exceptions, but by and large, those two streams run parallel to each other, but they're not the same. Mm-mm. You mentioned Hillsong. So, of course, Hillsong has gotten a little bit of press lately. Question as we talk, as we've been talking about worship music that gets elevated and shared, what would be your prophetic word to how this particular industrial complex could stay true to Jesus, stay true to its first love? Like, what would be your directives or your suggestions for how that would happen? Yeah. So, there's a couple of pitfalls, and then I'll say something constructive. One of the pitfalls is to write for the radio. Kind of what Mm -hmm. I've alluded to is to say, you used to listen to the hits and then say, I need to write the next blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's all derivative. At that point, then art becomes derivative and you don't want to do that. So kudos, there's a lot of songwriters and artists who are saying, no, 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 I'm not going to write for radio. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, no. But the pitfall on the other side then is they say, well, I'm going to write what's in my heart and I'm going to write Mm -hmm. out of my own devotional time. And the problem with that is you might get music that is highly authentic and personal and maybe even intimate, but is not rich. So those are the two pitfalls. And now I want to say the thing that's constructive. Dietrich Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer said that we should pray not out of the poverty of our own heart, but out of the riches of God's word. And I think that's the same challenge for songwriters. Don't write out of the poverty of your own heart. Even if your heart, aka it's a metaphor for your experiences with God, even though those might be great, that's not the best gift you could give the church, is to Mm. write out of your own experiences alone. You ought to write out of the riches of of God's word. And so another, you know, maybe metaphor here is, I often say to worship songwriters, let theology and the church's liturgical traditions, you know, like the song books, hymn books, prayer books mm-hmm. from 500 years ago or more, even Augustine's confessions going all the way back, let mm-hmm. those texts, let theology and the tradition be a door into new worlds rather than a fence that keeps you in bounds. Oh. So I, I've been in many songwriting sessions where the only time theology gets brought in is when people want to know am I in bounds? Like, mm-hmm. like, hey, is it okay to say this? Is this the right way to sing about the incarnation? You know, you're like, well, great. I mean, theology does function like a fence. That is part of its function. But actually, theology is meant to do so much more. I can't remember which torrents it was, you know, the, the several torrents. <laughs> around the tree. But one yeah. of the torrents said, true theology is a theology that sings. And so, that's a theology that isn't a fence, but it's a door. It opens you up to new views, to new vistas, to new rooms in the house. It's maybe a wardrobe door like Narnia and it opens up a whole mm-hmm. new world. So when songwriters, you know, pick up the Book of Common Prayer and start to read some of the prayers that Cranmer put together for the church and say, gosh, what if we try to write that or sing that? All of a sudden now we found a treasury um, mm. to feed the church. So yeah, okay. It's not good enough to say I'm not just writing for radio or I'm not just going to write from my heart. Okay. What are we writing from then? The scripture, the tradition, theology itself. Leaders in churches have, you have an, an incredible role because you're sort of like a museum curator. You decide what will be put out there and appreciated and inspiring yeah. to people. So you yeah. say, well, I'm not writing songs. That's fine. But that's like a museum curator saying, well, I'm not Van Gogh. Well, great. But you can decide what you're displaying mm-hmm. and what, what you're using to evoke awe in yeah. people. And so, so you, you don't have to control, you can't control CCLI and you can't control the radio, but you can shepherd your own congregation by helping to decide what songs they sing. And that's, 
that's a, a serious responsibility. I'd love to ask you a little bit about your role as you're, you're an author, you're a pastor, a leader. You have, I mean, talking about industrial complexes of, in Christianity, you know, you have what would be called a really solid, vibrant platform. That word platform comes up a lot in publishing. For better or for worse, it is one of those words that just yeah. keeps floating yeah. about. So as you think about your own, the platform that you've been given, how do you create a mindset about your own platform? And how yeah. do you do that in a way that is Christ-honoring? It is an important thing to steward. And I think the difference between a celebrity and a saint is the difference between an idol and an icon. And here's what I mean by this. Okay, so November 1st in many ancient Christian traditions is All Saints Day. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals, we don't talk about saints, but we have them. We have inspiring voices that we look up to. We just don't call them saints, you know, mm-hmm. because we think saints means a perfect person. But in Christian tradition, saints, it's never supposed to mean a perfect person, but mm-hmm. it's a person that made you think about Jesus and helped you offer your own life to Jesus. So in that traditions that talk about saints, they also talk about icons. And an, the idea of an icon is you're not meant to look at them. You're meant to look through them. You're meant mm. to look through them to Christ. Yeah. Uh, they are, an icon is like a stained glass window where you, you look at it, but really there's a light that's shining through it to some the real sort of scene. And I, I think our inability to think about saints and icons actually has made left us with only one category, and that is celebrities slash idols. Mm. So an idol wants you to worship them, an icon yeah. wants you to worship God because of them. Yeah, And the same thing with saint or celebrity. So for me, I try to think about the way I'm posting and the way that I'm writing or the way that I'm, you know, speaking on a podcast. Obviously, there's a there's a level in which it's my voice, it's my story. So you're not trying to take yourself out of the equation, but you don't want to be the end of it all. You don't want to be where this thing terminates. You don't want the attention mm-hmm. to terminate on yourself. You don't want mm-hmm. to be the the end focus. That my hope anytime I'm speaking or singing or writing or whatever is that is that people would glorify God. So in some ways, Helen, like it's helpful for me to to think I'm still a worship leader. I'm still mm-hmm. always uh, and ever a worship leader. And no worship leader really wants people clapping for them when a song is over. Like that's when you know, oh, I haven't trained my people to worship because they're kind of giving applause for the band like, oh, good job. That's mm-hmm. not it, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. every worship leader wants the praise to be lifted up. And there's a, there's a moment where a good worship leader knows there's a moment in a service where actually they almost become invisible and and it's just the people and God. And so... That's the paradigm I try to carry with me in whatever quote unquote platform influence that I have Mm -hmm. is the stories of the saints are meant to inspire worship. Icons are meant Mm -hmm. to help us look through to God uh, and not as an Mm -hmm. end in themselves. I love hearing you think about even something like platform because this is a hard topic for, I think, Christian authors, potential authors to think about this weird dichotomy where you don't want to be someone who cares about the number of Twitter followers you have, right? Yeah. Or all those yeah. things. At the same yeah. time, it's hard to get a book contract if you don't have I some know. of that. It's like this constant tension. So I guess maybe the question for you here is like, what are the ways that you can encourage aspiring authors who desire, right, to be able to have some influence and be able to have a place for their words to essentially go? What's your encouragement for how 
they can do that yeah. without getting sucked into, I don't know, the temptations of yeah. all that's entailed when you do that. You know, one of the gifts of social media is it is a non-traditional mechanism of influence and it's mm-hmm. outside the existing sort of institutional power structures. Yeah. And so oftentimes the people who are drawn to it are people who could not gain influence through traditional structures. So you see mm-hmm. women who in the Christian world cannot, you know, sort of break through mm-hmm. to the top of the org chart or sometimes, you know, my ethnic minorities. So there's a liberating power in social media because it is democratizing. It allows mm-hmm. everyone access to it. So that can be really good. But of yeah. course, there are dark sides to it. And that one of the dark sides is there's no accountability. And so the person, there's no vetting process of credibility with whether or not this is a credible voice or not. And then the other, the other downside is it becomes, you know, I think of that Latin phrase, the incurvatus, you know, where you're curving in on itself. You know, you can curve in on yourself by making this all about you. So if you're an aspiring author, writer, content creator, the focus always needs to be to create something of weight, mm-hmm. create something of substance, and then don't be don't be afraid to talk about it, you know? So you don't want to be famous for being famous. You don't want to have influence because you're an influencer. You want to create a message that is substantive and weighty. And then by all means, use these platforms as ways of getting that out there, of testing it, of refining it, of perfecting it so that you don't have to just follow through, you know. But I guess social media doesn't automatically reward credibility. It really only rewards mm. popularity. And so the onus is on you to make sure that you're also adding credibility to it. I think you do it really well of stewarding your public presence and your social media content. Have there been times where that social media presence is more of a curse than a blessing? Yeah, I think it's the weight of having to post all the time. You know, I think... And so sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I don't want to care about that. And uh, on, each one has a slightly different sort of thing. You know, Instagram, it's like you got to post something that looks cool and the infographics need to be right or whatever the meme, you know. On Twitter, it's like you've got to offer commentary. The pressure on Twitter is commentary. If you're not, you know, if you're not offering commentary on whatever's happening, then what are you doing? So I think you have to decide for your own mental health and for your own sort of ability to be present to the physical people in your life, whether that's family or friends or colleagues, you have to decide on your own parameters and then try to stick with it. I don't have time to post as much Mm -hmm. as I would want to. And I'm not mad about it, you know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's okay. So there are seasons when you're like, whoa, I'm really pushing and I'm creating content. And then there are times when you're like, you know what, I got to let this thing breathe a little bit. Excellent. Glenn, what's ahead for you in terms of future writing projects? I mean, I know that you, not only this book, you've also done the Resilient Pastor. I'm sure you have other things coming up. What are some projects you have going on that you can share? Well, there's one more that's coming out. Yeah, The Resilient Pastor came out February of this year, and it's been really great to have a bunch of different initiatives around it from the podcast to some of the city roundtables mm-hmm. and all that. But this December, my wife and I have a book that's coming out together called The oh. Intentional Year. And it's all about mm. a pathway and a set of practices along that pathway to live on purpose with your work, rest, renewal, prayer, all of the sort of areas of life. And it's really built around a keystone habit of a couple day away retreat where you reflect on the past, discern a word for the season ahead, and then start to take inventory of five spheres of your life and then actually 
put these things as events into the calendar. So we're super excited about that. It comes out in December, which is like perfect for end of year, beginning of year kind of stuff. And I, I, our hope for it is that it just helps people build in not just practices, but actually a, a set pathway to live intentionally. That is so good. Thank you, Glenn, for being on our show today. It's been such an honor and pleasure. And for those of you listening, we'd like to share that you can get a special 40% discount and free U.S. shipping on all the resources mentioned in today's episode by using the code EVN40 at ivypress.com. So don't miss this chance to get a great price on all these IVP titles. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producers and hosts are Paloma Lee and Helen Lee. If you're enjoying our show, we would welcome your reviews and recommendations. You can also support our efforts financially at everyvoicenow.com. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at everyvoicenow or visit the site for show notes, transcripts, and more. And join us next time for another inspiring episode.